Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Rachel Pope an OBGYN in the Department of Urology and is the Chief of Female Health Division. Also in the Department of Reproductive Biology at University Hospitals in Cleveland. She's fellowship trained in global women's health and has a focus on vulvar and vaginal disorders and sexual dysfunction in public health disorders. Today we'll be talking about sexual health in pregnancy and postpartum. See the show notes for an article talked about in today's discussion. Please enjoy the podcast. So today we have Dr. Rachel Pope, who is an obstetrician gynecologist in the Department of Urology at University Hospitals in Cleveland. She is the the chief of the female sexual health uh, division. And so we're very grateful to her to have this time to to share with us some of the uh, information about sexual health in pregnancy and postpartum. So uh, welcome, Dr. Pope. Thanks so much for having me. We, we, we love having your expertise. First, I'd like to, to start this off with just asking you about, tell us about sexual health in a woman who's pregnant, just throughout mm-hmm. the, the each trimester. Sure. So there are a lot of issues that come up during pregnancy as they relate to sexual health and and I think uh, one of the barriers in general, just to kind of to go through without without spending too much time or dwelling on the negatives, is that a lot of women think, okay, this is just part of pregnancy. I've I've got to deal with it, or you know, they don't really talk about it. They don't reach out to their healthcare provider. They don't even necessarily talk to their family and friends. But I would love to get across during this talk today that these changes might be normal, but there are adaptations, there's treatment, there's help that women can get. And talking about it helps to, it might help somebody else. So even if you feel like you're embarrassed or it's too intimate of a topic to bring up yourself, just know that you're probably helping someone else by asking those questions and by bringing it up to to your providers or to your family and friends even. But some of the basic things in pregnancy is we know there's body changes, just physical changes. We all know that's kind of obvious during pregnancy. There's also hormonal changes. And those things really affect physical comfort and they affect body image for a lot of women. And we know that from research, but we also know that just from from talking to our patients. Hormonally, there is kind of a dominance of estrogen during pregnancy, and this just continues throughout each trimester. There is a progesterone effect as well as progesterone. That word actually comes from progestate. So the hormone that is keeping the uh, fetus and the placenta and helping things grow from the very beginning. And that is continuing throughout pregnancy. That effect doesn't really disappear that much. 
But there's even some testosterone and some androgen effects that are happening. And those androgen effects increase from the first trimester to the third trimester and actually become more pronounced towards the end. But you might ask, okay, well, why is not every pregnant woman have a lot of acne or hair growth, which we see with elevated testosterone? And that's because the sex hormone binding globulin, which kind of grabs on to circulating androgens and makes the testosterone decreased, is also elevated during pregnancy. So even though there's a lot of estrogen and there's a lot of testosterone going around, that testosterone does not become as bioavailable or as accessible to that woman, um, although it does start to become more so in the third trimester and then to delivery. So we see the changes, you know, of course, from estrogen with breast enlargement as things are getting ready for a woman to provide milk if she chooses to after pregnancy. We see some, some things even like with stretch marks and changes with skin. Some people really love those changes of their skin. They say women look like they're glowing during their pregnancy. We think that's also from the estrogen, but everybody handles these things a little bit differently and their bodies react a little bit differently. Sometimes that huge onset of estrogen and progesterone makes people really nauseous. And that's why the first trimester can be so nausea producing and things tend to get better as those levels slow down and plateau in the second and third trimester. But for a lot of women, you know, those, those symptoms persist. Sexually, sometimes women have an increased drive. And I think that's probably because that testosterone is increasing. And some women really don't notice that much of a difference with their sex drive. But as I kind of was alluding to before, because of those physical changes, I think it really does influence women's body image. And not everybody feels that comfortable with the changes. Unfortunately, a lot of women feel like as they're as their uterus is expanding and their abdomen is expanding, they feel large and that does not feel necessarily sexy to them. And some people just physically become uncomfortable during sex and not all positions are possible. And so those are kind of the, this is a general overview, I would say of the changes that are happening in pregnancy, but I would, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the body image and, and the physical comfort. Is there a difference with each trimester and the you know, I guess the sexual drive, does it change with each trimester? I don't, I haven't seen that there's like a, that there's a general rule to that, but it would make sense to me that as the increased testosterone kind of outpaces the sex hormone binding globulin in the third trimester, that the drive would increase, but I can't find any evidence. And maybe because nobody's studying it, or maybe I just didn't find it. I couldn't find, you know, a large survey based or population-based survey that said sex drive will increase. I think just from talking to, to other women and patients, some people say it really increases and other people say it doesn't. But I think that that body image and the physical comfort just kind of puts a damper on things. I know a lot of women, they get really good responses from their partners and they say, you know, I didn't feel that sexy, but my partner thinks that it's incredibly sexy when, when they're pregnant and there's something really beautiful about it. And having that sort of positive relationship can kind of overshadow the body image. And then just figuring out the physical comfort, you know, might not feel that great in the third trimester to be in like kind of missionary style intercourse where, where a woman is flat on her back might become difficult for her to breathe. 
as there's more and more pressure from her uterus on her large vessels. And so that's a time I tell people, you know, try being on top, try different positions, try being on your side, because you got to be a little bit creative here. So even though there might be an increased drive during that trimester, you almost have more difficulty actually getting to, you know, vaginal penetrative intercourse. Your point about, you know, uh, just a little bit of research out there is so true. This, this just not a lot of research. Right. Um, Let's go to the uh, postpartum period. Now there's so many sexual issues that come up during that time. Yeah. How do you start with people? How do you evaluate them? Yeah. Postpartum, I think is where there are way more challenges to sexual activity. A woman might start to feel more like herself physically as her body is going back to her pre-pregnancy state, but hormonally things are not back to pre-pregnancy for at least, you know, six weeks to, to three months. And I think we really need to emphasize this fourth trimester. A fourth trimester for people who haven't heard that before is three months postpartum. And it's really thought of as this is the woman's healing period after she's delivered. And you still have a lot of body changes. You still have a lot of physical, um, physiological and hormonal changes. And if she's had an injury during childbirth, like a a tear, um, or if she's ended up with a C-section and has a big abdominal wound, And then even if she's breastfeeding, all of those variables come into play for sexuality and intimacy. There's so many more potential challenges. And this is where I start to see women come in for for care in my office. I do run a postpartum clinic for patients who've had third and fourth degree tears. And so I find that those women really have the, the biggest barriers to them because they are recovering from a vaginal injury. So again, I'm using a lot of heteronormative assumptions here, but that's because a lot of women who are coming to see me for care are, are wanting to have vaginal penetrative intercourse. And when they've had a vaginal tear, that's where the barrier comes into play. So that is a special population. If you've had a third or fourth degree tear, you do need extra healing time. You need to see someone who's comfortable monitoring the healing of those tears and making sure that it's healing properly because it, it is like it's a surgical procedure to have done the repair. So you need to have those that wound checked and make sure it's healing properly. And then we just don't get enough visits with women postpartum. I think typically most insurance cover a six week postpartum visit and that's it. But we did a a research study with our team at UH from our division, Dr. Kelly spearheaded it where we interviewed hundreds of women in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And so many of them had sexual issues in the first year postpartum and even up to three years postpartum. And yet we just have this one visit at six weeks. So I think we're missing that opportunity to talk to women about it and to let them know about some issues that might come up. And then the onus comes to them where they, or it's really on them where they have to decide that this is a problem interfering with their life enough that they've got to come in to see a healthcare provider and talk about it. That's a huge problem when you've got a newborn at home that's completely dependent on you, you know, completely. And so I think there are way more challenges in that postpartum period And then, you know, especially with breastfeeding, estrogen levels are decreased and the vagina and vulva really are going through a hypoestrogenic state, very similar to menopause. So people start to experience pain with sex that they never had before. They experience dryness they never had before. And 
honestly, I think a lot of my patients who have problems with their sexual relationships can kind of tie it back to their previous pregnancy where really they started having pain and felt like that's how it's going to be forever. And then just stop, started avoiding having intercourse. I'm glad you brought up the, the, the perineal trauma issue that that's an expertise in, in, in an area of research for you. Um, mm -hmm. Can we take a minute and just kind of talk to us about people with third and fourth degree tears? Is there, uh, you know, repairs? What would you tell uh, our providers, you know, repairing those things? Is there something you can do to decrease the amount of pain in the future? Um, mm -hmm. What are the things that you do for these people specifically? Yeah, these are tough tears to repair at the time of delivery. I can tell you from, from my training when I was doing obstetrics and doing those tears as they happened, the tissue is swollen. There's a lot of bleeding and it's it's a challenge. I would say you want to make sure you can evaluate the external anal sphincter. And if you don't feel comfortable, even if you've been in practice for a long time, if you don't feel comfortable knowing that that was a sphincter, seek out a colleague, seek out someone with more experience to make sure that, that you are understanding that anatomy, because it's not easy when everything is, is edematous and bleeding, but you want to make sure you get that sphincter put together properly using strong suture, something that might absorb a little slower and then when you're getting the bleeding under control, you might want to use a faster, more absorbable suture because I see women who've got probably just way more suture in the vagina and perineum than necessary. And they end up with a lot of granulation tissue and pain because of that. And I, I, I'm not blaming anyone. I know how it is when you've got a postpartum hemorrhage and you just need to stop the bleeding everywhere, regardless of where it's coming from. And so I, I tell people, I tell my residents, you know, use monocryl. If you feel like you need to throw another suture, use monocryl because that's going to dissolve faster and not maybe not going to leave as much of a granuloma tissue as the Vicryl that we traditionally use for vaginal repairs or, and perineal repairs. And then monitor at that patient. You know, I, I have all of the women in my postpartum clinic, they come to see me about a week after they've sustained a third or fourth degree so that I can intervene at that time and revise something if it needs to be revised. The worst thing is to go through six weeks of your maternity leave, you know, that whole six weeks of healing, only then to see your provider and be told you need a revision. And you're going to have to figure out another six weeks of healing, another six weeks of time off of work. If you can get in in that first week after that injury has been sustained, I, I think that's essential. And unfortunately, a lot of systems are not set up for that. But I, I do think that's where we need to make some policy changes. That's a, that's a great point. I know uh, the statistic I heard of, of these lacerations about 4%. And mm -hmm. I think if we could get all of these people and to see somebody like you in a week, that, that makes so much sense. What do you look for to, to make you think mm -hmm. oh, this is going to have to be revised? I see basically a dehiscence that if I see, if I see just superficially that the perineum is still coming together and the skin is just, just a, you know, a couple millimeters away from repairing, I know that that woman can take sits baths, you know, once or twice a day, she can just take a little extra care, put a little bit more ice and be, and really just apply some additional wound care to the perineum and it's going to heal. I'll have her come back two or three weeks later to make sure it's going in that direction. But most of the time it is. 
But if I see that it is a deeper dehiscence, more than a millimeter or so superficially, and it's really starting to split, that's where I bring them back to the operating room. Say you have somebody who's who looks pretty good, mm-hmm. and you see them back, and you see them back, and they and they heal pretty good. Yeah, they're complaining about the pain. What what do you do for them? So then I I want to kind of start from scratch and do a physical exam with a cotton swab or a Q tip and really look to figure out where exactly is their pain. Is it coming from the tear on the external side of things or is it internally vaginally? Is it because of dryness? Is she breastfeeding? I am a breastfeeding advocate. Don't get me wrong. I encourage all my patients to breastfeed, but I do explain to them that it causes their estrogen levels to decrease and they're going to probably experience vaginal dryness. So most of the time, I'd say a lot of them have pain from that and we get them on vaginal estrogen. And then when they are sexually active, I recommend using a silicone-based lubricant for a little additional protection to their tissues. But yeah, in that situation, I kind of start from scratch over again and and do a physical exam. What would you say about um, mode of delivery? We've talked about vaginal deliveries, but what about Mm -hmm. other modes of delivery about um, like elective cesarean for breach presentation or versus somebody who's pushed for three, four hours, and then comes to cesarean. What, what about these folks? They're both difficult recoveries. I would say I would always go for a vaginal delivery if possible, because recovery is so much faster. But of course, if you sustain a third or fourth degree tear, it's, it's going to be a long recovery period. It's going to be painful, but you said like less than 4% of the time that's going to happen. I'm, I don't feel like that risk is high enough to then say we should have elective C-sections. You know, if you have someone, of course, for the medical reasons who needs an elective C-section, I, I totally understand that. And I also think it's important for women to have information and be able to make decisions, but a C-section is a major abdominal surgery. And I think a lot of, a lot of women without the medical background or experience have don't, don't realize how hard it is to recover from that. I'll share with you my own personal experience. I've had both a C-section and a vaginal delivery myself. And And the C-section was so much harder to recover from. And I I just did not, um, you know, I wanted to have a vaginal delivery, but I ended up with the urgent delivery, urgent C-section for, for the baby reasons. And, um, you know, for two or three weeks, I needed my husband to either kind of pull help, like pull my arm to get out of bed or kind of give me support from behind and push me because I could not engage my abdominal muscles or my core to get up from a laying down position to standing up and, you know, having a newborn that puts a real damper on getting around the house and, and feeding the baby and, and just, it, it was rough. Concerning <laughs> um, sexual health, yeah, you know, uh, compare the two: a vaginal delivery yeah. with a cesarean. And we, you know, how do you expect somebody to get back to things? Yeah, I mean, there has been research on this actually to look at sexual activity and and sexual health for C-section versus vaginal delivery. And from what I recall reading, and they're done a, a few years back, there's really not that much difference for difficulties with intercourse or getting back to intercourse. Usually at six weeks plus, people start to get back into intimacy. However, the caveat being unless you sustained a third or fourth degree laceration. 
then then things are more complicated and women are not getting back to sexual activity that early. But I don't think that C-sections are all that protective. I think women are still recovering from that major abdominal surgery, you know, still having pain, different site of pain, but still having issues in terms of just being physical and intimate again. And then with breastfeeding, you know, regardless of mode of delivery, it's going to still give those same hypoestrogenic effects, unfortunately. In women that um, don't have a big laceration, mm-hmm. um, th- there's always the question of when can I restart sexual intercourse? And some people say, you know, mm-hmm. the traditional six week thing. And then some people talk about two weeks. What, what do you say? Yeah. I think everyone's different. You know, the vagina does heal well because there's so much blood supply there. You you will see small tears heal very quickly, but she, you know, the patient might still be very sore and uncomfortable. I feel like two weeks is a little bit early, but I would, you know, there are people who feel great at two weeks and, and want to try. So I just, I tell my patients tune into your body. You know, this is not a time where you want to push through pain. You know, I have some very physically active people who want to get back to exercise also, and they're used to pushing through that sort of pain. I said, this is the time to tune into your body. And if you're uncomfortable, you slow down, whether that's with exercise or with intercourse, no matter what you need a lubricant in those early, early days, and then just see, you know, how you're feeling, but have good communication with your partner. So that if it's not feeling right, you can kind of abort. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, the other thing is, is what about women who've had a hard go of it with uh, pregnancy complications, hypertension, Mm -hmm. uh, lots of bleeding, that's Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. What, what do you see a lot more of sexual problems in that population or no? Yeah. I mean, I have not really seen sexuality looked at or examined for that particular population. I think anyone who needs more medical attention or more medical care during pregnancy or postpartum is probably going to have more issues that are keeping them from being intimate. I can't really speak to any specifics on that, unfortunately, except that I would think it wouldn't really be affected too much with, with sexual activity. Um, But there, there could be factors I'm not thinking of, of course, with postpartum depression, I think that's a, that's an area where intimacy is going to be affected, just like depression in any population. You know, sometimes we see that when you don't have desire, you know, you're anhedonic, you're not interested in sex too. So that's part of that pleasure or joy um, part of a person's brain where they just might not be able to go there because of the depression that's, that's actually dominating um, their feelings. And thanks for bringing that up because that that was going to be a next question. How does oh, postpartum depression play into all this? Because I mean, yeah. there's a really high incidence of that in, in pregnancy. Yeah. So how do you approach that? What are you going to do for people? What do you tell them that it could take them to get back to some normalcy? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good point. And also I think an under acknowledged area is postpartum anxiety, which um, is treated very similarly, but I I see a lot of women with postpartum anxiety. And I think it's happening for the same chemical reasons that depression is happening, but it's a little bit less spoken about, but 
you know, things should get better with time. I'd say that with kind of quotes that they should get better as you recover and you go through that fourth trimester. So really, I would say that three months things will be improved. But that three months is so crucial to make sure the woman has support whether that's through family or friends, make sure she's getting sleep. Sleep is so important for mood disorders, for health in general. And we know what the newborn sleep is, it's tough. And just making sure that she feels connected. I think we saw this in a big way through the pandemic for women who are delivering at that time. They just did not have a social network or support during the postpartum periods. And, and I think I don't, I don't know for sure, but I think we probably did have an increase in postpartum depression and anxiety prevalence during the pandemic because of that. So it's good for people to know ahead of time, especially if they've experienced depression or anxiety pre-pregnancy, you're going to be at higher risk for it postpartum. So be prepared, get your social network and support system prepared as well. Let them know you need that extra support and you, you might need to rely on them a little bit more. And then let your healthcare provider know about your predisposition or your concern for it, because there is treatment that could be started as soon after you deliver that will help decrease or assuage the depression or anxiety effects. And you might not need to be on it long-term, but it will help you get through that postpartum period. What medication do you like to use? And this is really tough because, you know, I don't like the medications that decrease desire yes. <laughs> and most of the antidepressants do decrease desire, but, um, Wellbutrin is found not to decrease as much. So that's usually my first choice. And then there's a couple others, but we have to kind of look at other interactions and sometimes insurance doesn't cover them, but Trintelex and Vibride are, are the two that don't tend to cause as much, um, sorry, decreased libido. So, you know, Every time we start a medication, there's always side effects. I mean, try to find things that at least are not going to decrease someone's drive. And those are breastfeeding friendly, correct? I, I'd have to check on Trintelex and Vibride. I've never prescribed those ones for a breastfeeding mom. Yeah, I don't even but know well, if there's any information is. on them, yeah. yeah, I know they're tough. They're usually, they're tough to find and they're tough to get covered because of that. But, but supposedly they don't decrease drive as much. And then Wellbutrin is, is safe. So that's usually what I go for. Just putting this all together, a lot of wonderful information, but putting it all together, you have a, a pregnant patient that, that's had some issues and their, their, their term, um, you're going to have, you're going to sit down and, and talk to them about what's to come. What, what is your recommendations? What is your counseling sound like? Yeah. It's tough because I don't want to scare people. You know, you, you tell them all these terrible, scary things that could happen. And then they have a normal vaginal delivery with a very small tear. They heal no problem and they don't have any depression. <laughs> um, and so I, I like to let people know the full spectrum of what's possible and that it's if that happens to you, you know, there's treatment for it. There are healthcare providers out there that can support you through it and that it's important to to come for care and to get care, but that it's not necessarily going to happen. You know, most of the time things go well, but it's important to know of some of the potential risks that are involved without dwelling on those risks necessarily happening to you. So a little bit of disclosure, but not sure. too much detail. Yeah. So, um, well, I know you're uh, trained in global women's health. And mm -hmm. before we leave the subject, I just want to 
touch a little bit on on this because of your expertise in that area. And concerning pregnancy and postpartum, you have a woman from uh, an African nation, Somalia or some some someplace. Um, what's what's the culturally competent way to approach the issues we just talked about with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, every culture is slightly different. And there are some cultures that feel like if you tell them what, you know, tell them bad things that are going to happen, then you're almost manifesting that thing to happen to them. And so you do have to be delicate when you talk about the negative effects. And and there are there are lots of cultures within sub-Saharan Africa that really want to look at a, a positive outlook on things and not necessarily dwell on the negative because they don't want you to be, you know, wishing badly or wishing bad luck upon them. But I think what I found, I I was in Malawi for four years and I found it was extremely taboo to talk about sex openly. It was a very secretive time. It was a very secretive thing that happens in only specific places. And it, it typically would only be a discussion among women. There's really not that much acceptance of homosexuality. So this is really just thought of for heterosexual women, which is a tough thing too culturally to accept. But there were times where before a woman's marriage that church elders would give information about sex, which was interesting. Some of the, you know, women who are elders in the church or kind of long-term community members would give information to the, the person who's going to get married they are often talking about how to get pregnant. So they would often talk about sex and pregnancy together, but again, not really dwelling on the risks or the, or the terrible things that can happen, especially because in those countries, it's not that uncommon, unfortunately, for a woman to die in labor or in pregnancy because of the lack of access to resources. So it is a delicate thing. I I did find I was working in a, a hospital that was specifically for women with obstetric fistulas. And I found that being a female physician there, women were willing to talk to me about sex. And I think it's because they were already talking to me about something that was so intimate. It was, you know, they're leaking urine from their vaginas and they wanted to be able to be sexually active again. They wanted to get pregnant again. And that became kind of the safe space. And I even a medical student and I wrote a paper about this, that the fistula center became a safe space to talk about sexuality because women were comfortable talking about the medical problem they had and the surgery that they were going to get. And it almost opened the door to then talk about other intimate issues for, for vaginal health and sexual health. So if there's another sort of similar area where it can become brought into medically as a, as a healthcare provider probably is going to work a little bit better for female healthcare providers. Sometimes that can even be with the nurses. You know, I, our nurses at the fistula center talked a lot about sexual issues with our patients and that was hugely beneficial, but every culture is so different. So I can really only speak to my experience in Malawi and and sub-Saharan Africa, which was actually considered Southern Africa. And even as you could go just over one country over and you'd be in East Africa and the cultural differences would be slightly different. So I can't speak broadly, (laughs) but I would say get to know the culture that you're working in or working with, figure out, you know, there's probably going to be some taboo around sex, but figure out what, what is a acceptable way to open the topic. It might be through fertility. It might be by talking about the next pregnancy and then how, how to deal with sexual issues in terms of getting pregnant. That's just one example I could think of right off the top of my head, but 
just trying to gather that information from that culture before bringing it up, I think will will make the conversation more productive. Well, this has been a you know just a, a plethora of wonderful information regarding um, you know sexual health at this time of life for women, it, which is huge. I mean, they're mm-hmm. their family, and yeah. so um, we thank you for your time and really appreciate your expertise. And we certainly hope to talk to you again in, in this uh, in this podcast. So thanks so much. Wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. You too.